in a series on discipleship from the first of the year, and it's important for us to understand that a disciple is simply one who follows Jesus. He follows Jesus. She follows Jesus. Those who are disciples follow Christ. We follow in his footsteps. We emulate the very character, the very nature of Christ. We are in the process of becoming like him. And if that is the true concept of what a disciple is, it's important that we go to John chapter 5 again, as we did last week, and let's sort of preface exactly what it is that Jesus is doing in chapter 5 of the book of John so that we can understand and know how we then need to follow Christ. We're following Christ today in the aspect of the work of God. God is at work. He's at work from the very foundation of the world, the very foundation of the universe up until now. God is working, and Jesus is well aware of that reality. As a matter of fact, we see in this text several things today and next Sunday that, first of all, God believed, Jesus believed that God was at work on a continual basis, that God was always at work. There was another time, never a time, never a moment, never a period in which God was not on his throne and reigning and ruling and acting and working on the behalf of his purpose and his plan. He believed that God was always at work. Jesus not only believed that God was always at work, but Jesus also knew when and where God was working. He knew when and where God was working. And that's very critical for us if we are to follow in the footsteps of Christ because if we do, like Christ, believe that God is always at work, we must understand and we must know where it is that God is working because if we don't see, if we are not knowledgeable about where God is working, we stand a chance of missing an opportunity of joining God and we miss an opportunity of obedience. So Christ knew and he believed that God was always at work. He knew where God was working and he accepted what God was doing. There's never a moment, never time in which Jesus came to the realization that God was at work and he refused to go with God. Now while there was a time when he was in the garden and he was praying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, and he was struggling with the will of God, he did comply, he did accept, he did go with God. So he believed that God was at work. He saw God where God was working, acknowledged, yes, Lord, you are working. I accept that activity. I accept what you're doing. I accept your purposes, and I adjust now what I am doing to that which you are doing. And that is exactly what a disciple must do. If we are to go with God, we must adjust to the activity of God. And that, in essence, I think, is part of the rub of following in the footsteps of Christ. Those adjustments are not easy, but they are necessary if we are to join God and to go with him. In our passage in John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, we saw last week where God was at work in the life of a man who was at a pool next to the northwest side or area of Jerusalem and the temple, and he had been by this pool for almost 38 years when God, who had been working in his situation for all of these years, finally brings the solution, the answer to his problem of personal sin. Jesus enters the stage. He comes on the set. He comes to the pool, to the place where the man had been for 38 years with a remedy, with a cure. And he turns to the man who's at the pool and he said, sir, would you like to be healed? He says, well, of course I want to be healed. But the problem is, you know, when the angel comes and dips his finger in the pool and the water is stirred, someone beats me to the pool and beats me to my healing. And for 38 years I have been here. Obviously, I want to be healed. Yes, I have a desire to be healed, but I can't seem to make it and to find the healing that I need. Jesus looks to the man and he says to the man, rise, pick up your bed and walk. Without knowing the identity of the man, it was spoken with such authority that the man 
does exactly as Jesus commands. He was forgiven of his personal sin. The consequence of that sin, which is his physical condition, was automatically released, and he stood up, he rolled up his bed, and he proceeded to walk to the crowd that he had enjoyed and he had known for about 38 years gathered around the pool, and they were all in awe as to what God had done. Jesus slips off the scene. The man makes his way to the temple, and on his way, he runs across some some religious authorities who then proceed to question, to interrogate the man. Why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath, man? Don't you know that you're violating the law? They are well within their rights to inquire of the man as to why he is violating the law because they, by their profession and their appointment, have been given the task of making sure and ensuring that people obey and comply with the law. And so they're asking the man why. He said, well, the reason I am is because there's a man who found me in the pool over there a while ago and he spoke with such authority that he healed me and forgave me of my sin and told me to rise and to walk and carry my bed and that's what I'm doing. He told me to do that. They said, who? And he doesn't know the identity or the name of the one who has spoken with such authority into his life to forgive him of personal sin. We find in the narrative then that Jesus seeks him out while he's in the court of the temple and there's a conversation that transpires between the two. And Jesus affirms his cleansing, his healing, and he admonishes the man to go and sin no more. He releases him to go and to testify of the incredible, miraculous work of his personal sin having been forgiven and his sin having been cleansed. The man does what any one of us in this room would have done. He goes back to those religious authorities and he says, let me introduce you to the man who healed me. His name is Jesus. It's following that that we enter into our narrative this morning. Upon learning the identity of the one who has not only healed the man on the Sabbath, but the one who told the man to carry his mat is now being identified. And because of that identification from this, this man who I'm sure didn't quite understand the ramification of what he's saying, the passage then pick up in the narrative where everything now changes in the gospel according to John and how they are going to relate to Christ. It is from this moment on in John chapter 5, beginning with verse 16, where their response and reaction to not just the message but the ministry of Jesus completely takes a shift and turns south. Notice in verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. We find in this narrative, in these two very short verses, some interesting insights as to the rebuttal, not the defense, of Christ having performed this miracle on the Sabbath and for him telling this man to rise from where he is and display the glory of the Lord by carrying his bed on the Sabbath. What was their reaction and the response? They were enraged. Now, why were they enraged? Well, first of all, we understand, according to the contextualization of, of the period and time in which Jesus was there, that these men, these religious elite, these religious legalists, these law enforcers, were men that had already settled the debate and had already reached a conclusion in regard to the activity of God in the sense that they believed that God was always at working. They had come to that conclusion. They had agreed amongst themselves that God never takes a rest. God never stops working. I know that there are many who are biblicists in this room and would probably say, but what about creation where 
Jesus, on the seventh day, he rested. Well, they debated and discussed that for quite some period and at, for quite some length, but they came to the conclusion that you and I need to come to, that while God rested on the seventh day from creation, God did not rest completely. Because had God rested, had God abdicated, had he left the throne and stopped reigning and ruling for one millisecond to, from supporting and sustaining life itself and the world that we know, we would cease to exist. Because it is the sustaining power of God reigning on the throne that holds the universe together. I mean, the reason why the sun rises is because God makes it rise. The reason why the sun sets is because God makes it set. The reason why the plants grow is because he makes them grow. <coughs> he is the giver. He is the sustainer of life. And if God, for one millisecond, stopped being God and took a, a vacation for one millisecond, we would experience life ceasing as we know it. Yes, he rested on creation, but the redemptive work of God still happens even on the Sabbath because God is still at work. They understood that. They had clarity on that. They agreed with that with Jesus. What they didn't agree on was what Christ actually did on the Sabbath. You see, while they agreed with Jesus that God is continually and constantly working good things and sustaining and supporting life and the world and the universe as we know it, while he rested on creation, uh, you're saying here that God is operating in a way, in a fashion, that we are just not simply willing to recognize as an activity of God. We're not, we're not really ready then to, to come to the conclusion that you are coming to Jesus, that you're saying God is working through this miraculous healing. Now before we get a little bit too critical, I think there are times and there are moments in our lives where we are guilty of the same response to the activity of God in our lives, in our faith community, in our country, and in our world. I don't think any of us in here would probably debate or, or, or reach a disagreement in the fact that God is continually, constantly working. I mean, God is constantly, always at work. He never ceases, he never stops. That's an incredible, miraculous awareness of that incredible presence and power that he has to sustain and support life. But the problem comes in what he does. Because there are moments and times in our lives where we, we just quite frankly have preconceptions. We have expectations as to how we deem God is going to work. And we doesn't measure up to those, those expectations or those preconceptions that we have, those, those boundaries that we often want to put God into. We often then have a tendency then to resist, reject, and just refute the whole activity that God is doing. All of us, I think, there are times in our lives like these men have a problem with the activity or the lack of what we perceive to be the activity of God in our circumstance, in our lives, and in our world. Because who of us, when we have not faced the death of a loved one, have questioned God, God, what are you doing? We've been, we've been diagnosed with a debilitating disease. Have we not questioned God, are you sure you know what you're doing? Who of us have not been faced with a circumstance that has been unpleasant and, and has caused us to suffer and to adjust our lives? And we have said, God, I don't really like what you're doing. I don't really want what you're doing. I would rather that, that, that I don't even acknowledge that this is you at all. This is someone else or something else or Satan himself. And yet I
very short narrative in the response that Jesus gives to these men. Eight insights into the activity of God. Eight insights. Now, because we have communion here in just a minute, we're not going to take a lengthy time to go through these. I wish we did. I think there's really a sermon or a message in each and every one of these, and there are numerous verses that we have and I have to back these up, but I don't have time to do that, so we're going to go through them very quickly according to the narrative that's here in John chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. These are seven arguments that Jesus gives, not just really in defense, but in argument to that which God has done on the Sabbath in this man's life. All right, number one, God's work is, first of all, combative. God's work, first of all, is combative. You know, as you take a look at the narrative and you take it in its entirety, it it sort of rings to me some aspect about this, this combative nature between the world and the will of God, between Satan and darkness and the goodness and the forgiveness and the life that Christ gave this man. There, there's a struggle here. And it seems to suggest and, and, and gives me an insight into the fact that, that the will of God, the, the work of God, the activity of God is always indirect battle or there is a, a struggle, there is a war between evil and God, good and bad, Satan and the spirit, the world and the father. There, there's, this, there's this tension here. And we see the tension described in one word, persecution. These men were angry. And the reason why they were angry is because they had set up a system by which man was to be enforced. And it was a system in which it was causing men to be constrained. It was a legalistic system that did not offer freedom, grace, and mercy that the man needed, nor for their own lives. And because of that, Jesus was sent, wasn't he? And so we see that the reaction that they give is one of persecution and everything changes here in John chapter 5 from now on. Their harassment and their hostility now begins to increase not only against the message of Christ, but the ministry of Jesus and all that he stands for. And we know that this persecution is going to lead ultimately to the murder of Christ and the mock trial and a death on a cross in which they believe that they have fulfilled their ultimate objective, and that is to stop Jesus from performing his ministry and from doing his miracles. They have stopped his influence, but they don't know that they haven't. Why? Because it's an activity of God. And darkness always loses out. Satan never wins. He cannot thwart, stop, hinder, or undo what God wills and what God purposes. So in our lives, as we reflect upon, as Jesus says, this this whole aspect of this incredible work that God is doing in us and through us and among us, it's nice to know that, that though the gates of hell come against us, nothing can stop, prevent, or alter, or change that which God wills and purposes through his people. So we see here sort of a combative nature in regard to the work of God. Second, we see not only combative, but we see a conflictual aspect in this whole argument that Jesus gives. Notice he says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Why? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Why were they angry? Why did they begin to persecute him? Because he was tearing down their man-made system. There was a worldview that was going on during this particular period, even though it was a religious worldview, and even though they believed they were on God's side, they were not. And there was this 
conflict between these religious traditions and these presumptions and these expectations as to what God could and couldn't do. They had placed God in a box in their man-made world system that says you can't operate outside of this, outside of this box. And Jesus not only knocked the lid off the blocks, he blew it up by performing this incredible miracle on the Sabbath and telling the man to go and walk. And what that says to me, I think, is that, that our preconceptions and our expectations in which we sometimes, in our religious attempt to narrow God and what he can do and put him in our box, we think we can confine him and constrain him, but the reality is he's limitless. And even though we can justify sometimes by human reasoning and maybe back it up even with scriptural understanding and precepts and whatever we think, God, while, while he does do what he says and says what he does, and while this Bible is accurate and true and completely reliable and trustworthy and, and, and inerrant and all of those things, sometimes we ourselves as his people have a tendency like them to put him in a box and say, God, you must do it this way. Uh, you, you have to work according to my expectations. I mean, this is what I've understood. This is what I've defined. This is what I've concluded. So therefore, God, you can't do that. Really. He can. And he oftentimes does. And he blows us out of the water and he blows our conceptions and our expectations completely out because what we expect and what we presuppose and what we thought and what we had planned... I mean, he said our ways are not his ways and our thoughts are not his thoughts. No matter how well intended these religious authorities were, they were wrong in trying to confine and constrain the activity of God to the healing ministry and the message of Jesus. He's limited. No, he's limitless. Yes, we can't limit God. For our God is limitless. And there are times when there will be conflict between us and God because our expectations and our presuppositions are wrong as to how he can and how we want him to work. Number three, God's activity is also caring. It's interesting in this text that we see that God's work is a caring work. Jesus, in his argument, he begins his, his argument by saying, my father. I looked at that and I thought, Jesus, for the first time, is confronting these religious authorities by saying, I am related to God. And my relationship to him is one of a child. He is my father, and I am his son. There is a relationship, a love relationship of intimacy. There is an acquaintance between us and God that makes me family. And because he is my father, and he is always working, I too, like my father, am working. It is a relational concept here where he says, I am. Why? Because my father is. And because my father is, I am my father. And I got to thinking about that, and I wonder, you know, I think many times the reason why we often have a tendency to, to have conflict with, with what God is doing is because our relationship isn't what it ought to be. 
I mean, Jesus understood that, that because of the relationship he had with the father and the father was his son and he was related as a family member that he knew that his father cared about him and he cared about the man and he cared to do good and he knew that the father cared and he cared about Christ and the man. And, and I think sometimes the reason why when God is doing something, we don't think that, that God is doing what we want him to do. We often question, God, do you really care? Well, does the father care for his children? I think sometimes we need to understand that we need to wipe away some of the concepts that we have of our Heavenly Father because we often don't have a tendency to reflect and to think about Him as being a caring God, but He cares about us. And as we enter into an intimate love relationship and we are walking with Him in communion, it's interesting that we need to understand that whatever He brings or doesn't bring into our lives, He does it because we are His children. He is our Father, and He cares for us. It's about a relationship, of a caring, loving relationship. We are His children, and He is our Father. And we often have a tendency to say, God, if you really cared, you let this cup pass from me. That's what Jesus prayed, wasn't it? In the garden that evening, anticipating what He was going to suffer on the cross. But eventually, what did he do? He accepted the will of the Father, and he made the adjustments that were necessary, and he went with God even to that tribunal, which eventually led to his death and his suffering on a cross. And aren't you glad he did? I said, aren't you glad he did? I am. Why? Because he cares about us. And as our Father, whatever he brings into our lives... It isn't because he doesn't care. He's our father and he loves us. And it's the, sometimes the most caring thing to do to take us through a period of suffering in our lives. Because taking us through that suffering eventually and ultimately accomplishes the plan, the purpose, and the will of the father through and in spite of our pain and our suffering. I see the fourth argument in the words of Jesus. God's work is not only combative and conflictual and caring, but it's constant. The word father to me is, a, is, is, is an identification. It, it's a word that helps us understand that he as our father is a father that is not only caring, but a father who is always true. He is always constant. He always works in his nature and according to his characteristics. He never violates those. I mean, God is a, is a constant God. He is the same yesterday as he is today, and he will be tomorrow. He doesn't change. And that's the beauty about our Heavenly Father. He never changes, unlike our earthly Father, who many of us would have to say, you know, the way I relate, relate to my Heavenly Father is a little bit out of joint because my earthly Father was non-existent or he was horrible. And because of that relationship that we often convey to our Heavenly Father in the relationship that we had with our earthly father, we often have a tendency to carry that over in our understanding of not only him, but how he works. Well, the reason he's doing this is because he's angry with me. And the reason he's doing this is because he's a mean God. Or the reason he's doing this is because he's an unfair God. My, my earthly father with those things, so therefore my Heavenly Father is like that. And that's not right. It's not accurate. It's not a right perception of God. He's not like your earthly father. 
And there's some of us who had the privilege of having great fathers. But even in their goodness and their greatness, and they were wonderful models and examples of what a father should be, they weren't perfect. And because they weren't perfect, even though they had the best of, 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 uh, of wants and they had the, the best uh, desires, they didn't always live up to their expectations or our expectations. Sometimes they would make promises that they couldn't fulfill because of the nature of life. And they often, sometimes because of their imperfection, imperfections, would disappoint us. And so we carry that on to the Heavenly Father too. You know, my earthly father, <coughs> he disappointed me. So my Heavenly Father in this, what he's doing is, is going to be disappointing that's not an accurate view of God. Our Heavenly Father is perfect. He's perfect. He's flawless. He's faithful. Every single one of his attributes and all of his characteristics and his entire nature is one of perfection. And because he is a God who does what he says and says what he does, and because he is faithful, because he is caring, because he is omnipresent, you're never alone, because he is omnipotent, he is limitless in his scope and his power, and because he is all wise, everything that he does is for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Everything, everything, everything. It's hard for us to conceptualize that, isn't it? Especially when we're struggling with suffering and pain and hardship and difficulty and unwanted circumstances. But it sure is easy to do that in the blessings, isn't it? Why is it easier in the blessings than the hardships? Because we're human. But God is constant. We see the, the fifth argument here is he is also continuous. He is continuous in that he is constantly working. Jesus says, my father is working until now. He is arguing with these people. God is always at work. We already identified the fact that they agreed with that. But even though he's continually working, they didn't like the way he was working. They didn't want what God was doing. I think sometimes we have a tendency to believe that God somehow, somehow has abdicated his throne. Because if God knew where I was, if God knew what I was going through, if God knew what I wanted, then he'd give it to me. It's kind of like the, the baby I saw not long ago in the, in the grocery store. Uh, they put those things by the checkout. For what reason? To entice you to throw things in your bag, in your, in your cart that you forgot. And most of those things you don't need. You notice that? A few of them you do. And why do they put candy there? They know moms are going to be there with kids and kids are going to want what? Candy. And this little, this little child was throwing a royal fit. A royal fit. Because this child wanted that piece of candy. And it started out minor and the parent said no and the parent continued to say no as the child insisted and the child decided that the insistent that it was given this was not enough so that child escalated the demand and with the escalation came the no and with greater escalation came more no's and no matter how many times the child began to scream and to pan and to shake and to stomp and to throw a fit the parent wasn't budging 
until every eye in the store was on the parent and the child, thinking that the parent was probably physically abusing the child. Because the child somehow believed that they could stop and rant and rave and scream and all of that until the parent was going to finally give in, but the parent was not going to give in. And I got to thinking about that, and I wondered how many times is that how we relate to the activity of God? You know, you can pray all you want, cry all you want, scream all you want, yell all you want, get angry all you want. God is constantly, continuously at work. And no matter how we protest or no matter how we, we object, we can't change his mind. And we won't alter his will. Because he has a purpose and he has a plan, he has a strategy, he has an objective. And he knows what the, what the end of the line is. And he knows what's best for us as his children. I see number six in his argument that God's work is, is, is number six, is collaborative. It's collaborative. Jesus then responds by after he says, you know, my father is working until now. He says, I am working. I am working. It kind of rings the I am. Who is the I am in the I am in the Old Testament, Right? Jesus has also been collaborating with the Father, even in the Old Testament. He said, now in the New Testament era, during these days, I am a manifestation of the, of, of the person of God through his Son. And because my Father is working, I too am collaborating with him. I am joining God in what God is doing, and he is working in and through me. What I do is not in and of myself and independently of the Father. He is working in me and through me. I am his instrument. And isn't that how God still works today? It's a collaborative work where we as his people who follow in the footsteps of Christ, as Christ availed himself and made himself available to God, we too make ourselves available to God and he works his will, his plans, and his purposes through us. Right? It's a collaborative effort. And then number seven, we see that his argument says that the work of God is consistent. It's consistent with his purposes, with his plan, and with his will. It is consistent. He says, I am working. I am workingly, I am working in, in, in sync and consistent with what my Father is doing. It's consistent with what God is doing. I believe Jesus says, saying here that God is at work. And I believe that he shows me exactly what it is that he's doing. I believe that he invites me to be a part of that activity. And as he does, I join God in what God is doing. And as I join God in what God is doing, making the adjustments that are necessary to go with God, then what has been done on the Sabbath is an activity. It's a work of God. It is consistent with his plan and his purpose. And I wonder, as we consider joining God and what God is doing, could that be said of us? That what we are doing is consistent with what God is doing. Because, you know, often to be quite frank, we don't really like what God is doing. And we'd rather God do something else. Or maybe we believe that God doesn't know what he's doing, so we're going to help him out. And do something different. We need to be really careful that as we, 
as, as, we, as we come to this whole relational aspect of following the footsteps of Christ, that, that we are consistent in what we do with what he is doing. And then lastly, I see that it's compassionate. It's compassionate. What was the work that God was doing? What was the work that God was doing? We've said it before. Redeeming a lost humanity and recruiting servants. Who was the instrument? Who was the vessel? Who was the one that God was using? Jesus. Why did he do that? It's the same reason why Jesus passed by that pool on that day and looked at that man and cherry-picked him out of the crowd and asked him, do you want to be healed? And he said, of course, I desire to be healed. He said, then rise, walk, and go. Take your bed. And he did. Why did he do that? Out of his compassion for our need, a need that this man could not meet in and of himself independently of Jesus. We, like the man, have a need that we cannot meet independently and apart from Jesus. That need is sin. It is a forgiveness of sin. And it's for that reason we have this beautiful passage that I want to just quickly read to you. It's a passage when God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, says, In, this is kind of similar, I want you to think about this, it's sort of, we like this man at the pool, we in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but time had come. God set forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What are we now? Family members. We're going to have uh, in just a little bit down here a lunch for about close to 40 people that have indicated their interest in maybe becoming a part of our church through either faith in Christ or maybe to move their membership and become a part of our church. What is a church? It's a family a family what? Who has a father. We are sons and daughters. And because you are sons, notice it says in verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into our, into our hearts saying, what are we saying? Abba, father. You're my daddy. You're my father. You're my dad. It's the same words. My father who is always at work up until now. I am working God, you're working. So you are no longer a slave, but now a son. And if a son, then what? An heir. An heir. Through the activity and the divine work of God, our Father. Which is what brings us to this point in this time of celebrating what we call the communion or the Lord's Supper. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Out of his compassion, like the man at the pool, he saw you in your depravity, in your lostness, and in your need. And he picked you out of a crowd and he said, I choose that one. And he revealed himself as a solution to your sin. And after placing your faith and trust in him as your savior, brought the redemptive work that needed to happen in your life, and he cleansed you 
and he saved you. And today we have an opportunity as a church family to acknowledge the activity of God through his son and to give him praise for what he did. Not just through Jesus on the cross, but what he did when we came to faith in him and what he continues to do in us. Because you see, there's a, there's a finality to his work, isn't there? He said that he would continue to work until the day of our perfection. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. When did he begin that good work in you? When you came to faith in him as your Savior and as your Lord. And he's not stopped working and will not stop working until you're complete. Some of us in here, like myself, we're a piece of work. But aren't you glad he's still working? He's still working. And while there may be times I don't like what he's doing or want what he's doing or may argue about what he's doing or may even pray against what he's doing, I'm glad he's true to his character and to his nature and that his compassion never changes and never ceases for those in whom he is working. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com. 